Hey, nurses, are you looking to put a few more letters behind your name? Oh, I don't know, like BSN, MSN, or maybe even DNP? If you are, take a look at what South University is offering. Whether you're looking to attend from home, on campus, or a combination of both, South University has something for you. To learn more, check out southuniversity.edu or call 855-884-2408. Welcome to the Nurse.Podcast, giving nurses validation, resources, and hope one episode at a time. Today on Nurse.Podcast... patient is sitting there going, I just had this major procedure that's probably the major event of their life. And there's such a disparity of how you guys view it to how the patients view it. And it's part of your job to not become indifferent to it, even though you know it's something that's relatively routine nowadays. To the person, it's not a routine day. Joining us today, Ted Meyer. Artist-in-residence at USC Keck School of Medicine and longtime patient advocate, Ted shares with us his experiences of living with a very rare and incurable disease, the relationships he has built with his care team along the way, and how it has led him to create his program, Art and Med, a collaborative catalyst for change in healthcare, designed to improve the experiences of patients, med students, and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Kara Lunsford, registered nurse and VP of community at nurse.com. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. So we're really excited to be able to like kick off this next season and you're the first interview that I've done. So I just wanted to say in the very beginning, because nobody knows who you are, Ted Meyer, that I am just so incredibly excited to have you on this podcast with me. We have been talking about doing a podcast, you and I, for ever. Years. Years. Before there were podcasts, I think. Yeah, yeah. When we were talking about bridging the gap, the nurse-patient relationship, there was not a better person to talk to than you, Ted Meyer. Well, I am proud and (laughs) glad to be here. You kept me alive long enough to do the podcast with you. (laughs) That's really the only reason I kept you alive, Ted, is because I was like, there's there's promise here. There's promise for a good podcast. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, okay. So you have a really interesting story just in terms of being a patient. You've been in the system a long time since a child. Since I was five years old. Since you were five years old, which means that really you were not diagnosed until you were five, right? No. Well, I didn't or you have were... any symptoms. So I have okay. Gaucher's disease, which is a lysosomal storage disorder. And it there's different types. There's there's one type that shows up right when you're born. There's neurological problems. My mind was more enlarged spleen, liver, bone problems, and, and they didn't really show up till I was five or six. So you don't get diagnosed with that type. You don't get diagnosed until symptoms show up. 
but that was I'm 65, so that was 60 60 years ago. (laughs) So I imagine 60 years ago coming in with these symptoms. Did they they immediately knew what you had, or how long did that take? No, no. In fact, my brother has the same thing. It's a genetic illness, and he was diagnosed with something incorrect first, and then. I was diagnosed at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, and there was an intern from Poland who had seen this illness in Poland. At the time, there were only about 200 known cases in the world, and it's a genetic illness that Ashkenazi Jews had because we were ghettoized and and things like that. So it's, it's very prevalent in the Ashkenazi Jewish community, but it is not solely in the Jewish community. Got it. And so some of your, just so the listeners know, like some of your symptoms were what? Bone pain, severe bone pain, bone infarctions, enlarged spleen. I had my spleen out when I was, that was the first major thing. I had a, I I looked like a starving child from those photos used to see in Africa. My my stomach was really sticking out because my spleen was very enlarged. And then once that happened, what happens is all these sort of cells collect in the spleen. And then once you take the spleen out, they go into the long bones. And then I started having problems in the long bones and bone infarctions and pain. And so I would be in the hospital three to four times a year, uh, mostly just to put me to sleep through the bone crisis. So I didn't have to deal with the pain. There was no (sighs) treatment then. And then NIH came up with a treatment when I was 42. So I had to wait 36 years from my first bone crisis until NIH came up with a treatment. There's so many things going through my head because I'm thinking about, as a nurse, we would have, you know, and and we actually did an episode about this frequent flyers, right? So we would have these frequent flyers that would come into the hospital. And in my area specifically, the frequent flyers were usually the sickle cell patients who would come in with sickle cell crisis, right? And and, uh, very, very interestingly enough, kind of very similar to like the pain crisis that you're kind of experiencing. that's kind of like what sickle cell patients would come in with this like pain crisis, right? We would have to give them a lot of pain medications. And even though we knew legitimately they were having pain, I think that there was still this big stereotype around pain-seeking meds and stuff like that. What kind of like medications were you getting early on? So you said they were pretty much like sedating you down. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because when I was when I was young, they didn't have it seems so simple now, but we they didn't have the morphine drip when I was a kid. So every four hours they would come in and give me a shot of morphine or some really powerful painkiller. And I would sit there. I always say that I was like a six year old drug addict because I would be looking at the clock and going. It's been three and a half hours. My pain is coming back. Where's my shot? And and I would I would just wait for them to come in, and I would try to get them to give me the shot early. And and then they would give me a shot, and it was this incredible, incredible rush of uh, 
just relaxation and stopping the pain and being able to go to sleep again for a while. And it's, it's one of the reasons I've never done any drugs because I was, I just so craved that rush of that painkiller that I've been afraid to go near drugs my entire life because I wasn't sure if I started self-medicating, if I would have the resistance to stay away from it. Wow. That's a real, that's a real self-awareness right there, because I think that there's a lot of people that do become addicts or they have this incredible dependency on these medications, especially when they get it for like long periods of time. And then knowing that in life, if they're going through some sort of pain, and that may not be physical pain, that may be emotional pain, that might be, you know, something else that makes them think, I know how to make this pain go away. I know that if I just did, if I just got some morphine, if I just got some, like, I could really like take myself out for a minute and not have to experience this pain I'm having. Yeah. And, and later on, there were times when they would, you know, the whole opioid thing, I would be on Oxycontin or something for two or three weeks. And then when they had to pull me off the pain medications, I would go through sort of a mild withdrawal. That was in my teenage years and into my 20s when I was still having bone crisis. So I, yeah, I just stayed away. I've seen the, the downside of it. So all of this kind of leads me into wanting to ask you, did you feel like your nurses had a lot of compassion for where you were? Or did you feel like sometimes you were dealing with nurses that were like, oh, he's just addicted to pain meds. Oh, he just wants more pain med. What was that experience for you in terms of like trusting the nurses that were caring for you? Well, I think it depends on which time of my life. So when I when I was growing up, I lived outside New York City and the nurses, it, they were Jamaican. They were um, a lot of Irish came over because the economy in Ireland was bad. And the, 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 pediatri- the pediatrics floor it was like a United Nations. There were people, because it was New York, there were people from all over the world, and they were really, really compassionate. Um, it wasn't as as corporate as it is now. Plus, I was, I will say, a particularly cute kid with dimples, and it was, they got to know me because I was there so often. So I really felt like I was raised by this gaggle of, incredible women of all races and accents in New York City. Now, as an adult, once I moved to California, it was different. You know, you, well, first of all, once you're out of the pediatrics uh, ward, it's it's a whole different thing, too. But I, I always felt the nurses had my best interest, but there wasn't that sort of compassion and mothering, you know, which you wouldn't expect as an adult. And and it just seemed different. Like here at Cedars or some of the hospitals I've been in here, the, like at night, the nurses, they really stick to themselves. They don't, they don't talk to you. They don't, it, it just seems different now. And I think that has to do with insurance and probably what people are allowed to do and say to you and, and all. But I feel I feel very lucky I had that group of nurses when I was a kid. I love that we're able to explore kind of what nursing was like 
50 years ago or 60 years ago because oftentimes I talk to nurses who are like, I've been a nurse for 45 years. When I was a nurse 45 years ago, there was two sides to it, right? In some way, it was very oppressive, I guess, because it was like you're the the doctor's handmaiden. You are, you know, an assistant to the doctor. You are not even allowed to take blood pressures. It was very, very controlled and I, you know, venture to say very patriarchal in nature. And so the nurses were actually able to do the kind of work that they wanted to do, even though it was pretty oppressive and not very respectful in a lot of ways, they were able to go in and like be with the patient and actually talk to them and hold space with them and be very mothering, like to what you said, like, you know, really kind of bring in that compassion and that love and care. And then over time, as nurses have, you know, probably advocated for wanting to do more and wanting to have more responsibility and saying, hey, you know, I, I've learned how to do a lot of things in nursing school and you really don't let me do any of the things that I've learned in nursing school. And so we've gotten more responsibility over time, which is great because nurses are wicked smart and totally capable of doing so much more than just being, you know, an assistant to the doctor. Well, plus it's up to the nurse, I think, to advocate for the patient because there's a nurse there 24 hours a day and the doctor is there for 10 minutes a day when they're doing their rounds. So exactly. Luckily, I mean, I haven't been in a hospital overnight for 20 years since I had my last set of hip replacements, but I am you know, not that I'm glad, but if I, I think if I had to choose what time to be in the hospital for long periods, it was probably better when I was a kid. And also, as you're moving through, things are changing for nurses rapidly, probably. So when you started getting care from nurses in the adult area, do you have stories that stand out to you of really good experiences that you had with a nurse or the opposite, like a story where you had a really bad experience with a nurse. Not when I was sick, not about my illness, but things that happened around me. And a lot of them involved the nurses around me. And none of them involved nurses when I was an adult. They all have stories of the nurses when I was a kid, you know. Um, so I, I don't have any sort of real memories of adults adult interaction with with nurses except one time. So I had had my hip replaced. I was down at Scripps Clinic in La Jolla. And my my back hurt really badly because, you know, when they do your hip, they really twist you so that they can get at your hip. And they tweaked my back. And I was in the bed and I kept asking, you know, for a board or something because when you have your hip done, they put you on that egg crate. So it's very soft which is good for your hip, but it was it was really painful for my back. There was no support. So about two days after I had the hip replacement, I swing out, I get out of the bed, and I lower myself down to the floor because I want to be on something hard. And the, the nurses came by, and they didn't come in the room. They just saw my feet on the floor that I was laying down on the floor. And like 
a minute later, there's this code blue. They come in with a crash cart. They assume that I had fainted and landed up on the floor. And I'm just sitting on the floor watching TV, and they all run in. And I'm like, hey, what, what's up? They're like, we thought you died. <laughs> I mean, I I guess that's a testament to like when shit goes down, they're going to show up. Coming up after the break. I think there's two distinct healings. There's when the doctor says you're healed and when your body and emotions tell you you're healed. All right, y'all, if you're anything like me, you're always toying around with the idea of going back to school. Well, if you are, you'll want to check out South University. South University has bachelor's, master's, and doctoral programs that fit almost any schedule. At South University, you can get your degree from the comfort of your home, on campus, or mix it up with a little of both. To learn more, visit southuniversity.edu or call 855-884-2408 to get connected with a representative who will take the time to understand your academic goals and answer any questions you have. As a pediatric patient, what, what were your experiences like when you were a kid? Because I do think it's important for the listeners and anyone in general to understand what are the things that we do or that we can do that make a huge difference in people's lives? Well, I've, I've always been a big believer in that with kids that if you don't really, I mean, you can acknowledge that they're sick, but if you don't treat them like they're sick, they won't feel that they're sick. And I, other than the pain, I didn't really mind being in the hospital because I have these people that it really became my family when I was growing up. And and I can still picture people's, I can't remember their names, but faces of nurses that were there. And then when I would come back, because I was a repeat offender, you know, they would all come in and say, hi, sorry, you're back, but we're happy to see you. And, oh, you've grown. And so I really had this odd extended family of the nurses. And a lot of times kids just, if you just, and I've worked with kids at, at children's hospital and things since then. And, you know, that's that's sort of the life I had. That's the life they had. And you adjust to it. If you don't treat them like they're that unusual, they won't be damaged by it in the same way. I'm not saying there's not long-term damage by having a chronic illness as a child. But if you're kind of just told that it's okay and this is your lot, and if you don't learn to hate the situation, then maybe you won't. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. It makes a lot of sense. When you work with children, and I would even venture to say adults. I Now, adults are a little different in that I think sometimes they want to be acknowledged that they're sick, <laughs> you know, but I would say that there are still things that apply, whether you're talking to pediatrics or you're talking to adults. And one of the things that I used to utilize, I would go in at the beginning of my shift or right when I met the person and was like, kind of tell me, like, tell me what you, what you need, you know, tell me what you, 
what is your, you know, what was your night like? What's your goal? Are you trying to get out of here in two days? <laughs> are you trying to get out of here in three days? Um, are you trying to get out today? Like, are you like, look, I need to be discharged like today. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about like what your goals are, what you need. Um, do you feel like you're, you know, you're getting treated or do you feel like you're not getting better? Um, you know, just asking a lot of these questions early on because if I can bring down that level of anxiety when I first meet the person, like if I can establish that relationship early in meeting them, that everything is really easier with that patient moving forward. Okay, so this gets into what I do for a career now. So since nobody listening to the podcast knows what I do, I am titled an artistic patient advocate. And for years I did graphic design and I got to where I couldn't stand it anymore. And I started thinking, how can I combine the fact that I'm an artist and I love art with all this knowledge I have about being a patient in the medical world? So I started, first I did a series about people's scars. I did monoprints of their scars and collected their stories. And it's exactly what, what you said. What, what I noticed is that people, a lot of people, um, let's say you have a heart transplant and the doctors after six months will go, you know, you're fine. The bones in your chest are back together. Your, your scar has healed down the middle of your chest. But a lot of those people still need, they want to tell their story. Just like you said, they want to be acknowledged for their strength of going through it, their suffering of what they went through, and the stamina just to, to finish the whole thing. And, and I think there's two distinct healings. There's when the doctor says you're healed and when your body and emotions tell you you're healed. So that's one thing. The the other is just what you said. It's so funny how you mentioned this. But I would go to these groups of people who had my illness, not as a kid because there were so few of us then known, but as an adult. And a lot of times the parents are the ones that they sort of compare their kids' symptoms. Like, my kid has it worse than your kid. It's so, not like it's Munchausen syndrome. But it's it's definitely the the kids want to be kids and go to the playroom and play and draw, but the adults are all talking about whose kid has it worse, and and I think that that happens everywhere. I think that's part of a parent being protective. They always want to make sure their kid um, is you know getting the best care, and everybody of course thinks their kid suffers the most but that's not always the case. But it did seem like a, a a race sometimes for the parents to outdo each other and how much their kids had suffered. Um, and now I do work with artists who do work about their illnesses so that they can tell their story. So it's it's like you said about going in when you wanna, when you wanna get out, what's your story? I think it's really important for people to be able to verbalize their story, what they're suffering, especially in the hospital, what they're missing. We had a we had a conversation with a pain doctor at USC because I'd curated an art show about back pain, and the we always paired the artist with a doctor, 
And I said to the doctor, do you still use those stupid charts? I, I didn't say stupid, but the one with the happy face and then the sad face. And she said, oh, we don't use that anymore. We just ask people, what are you not able to do now because of the pain that you want to do? So it's, you know, it's a different way of talking about it now than when I was a kid. I used to get that pain chart all the time. How, you know, they would come into my room every day, how bad's your pain? And you'd point to the face, which really didn't say much. But this doctor's idea of what are you missing out on because of the pain so that we can get you back to a normal life is exactly what you were saying about your initial conversation with your patients. I, I'm so glad that you were able to just encapsulate what what I was experiencing kind of on my side. Because really, when I do something, I feel like, okay, let me like meet the person where they are. Let me try and understand their struggle. Let me try and see, you know, is there something I can do to help? Or is there not anything I can do to help? Because in some situations, you have to have some humility, right? You have to realize that there are people that are just, they're missing out on life. They don't have their friends there. They want to be able to do activities and sports that, that their friends are doing and they can't do. A lot of times I think as nurses, we feel like we have to fix things, right? Like we have to fix it. And in some situations, it's to what you just said is sometimes they just need to express it. Like they just need to like say, this sucks. You know what? My life right now, I just feel like it sucks. And we don't have to try and make it better and say, well, think about it this way, like it could be worse. Or, you know, I have a patient down the hall who doesn't have a leg. At least you have a leg. Like, you know, we don't need to do that. Like we just need to meet the person where they are and say, you know what? You're right. This sucks. Yeah, you have to acknowledge that. It's really just letting people, you know, in the medical schools now, it's all about they always say patient narrative. It's what is the patient going through? And that doesn't just mean the procedure. It's the healing process. It's it's all that. And everybody does it differently. Not that everybody gets the same care because our medical system is crazy. But you also don't know, like, you can have wildly divergent outcomes because when some people go home, they're going to a mobile home park with three people living in a trailer. I'm using that as a stereotypical extreme. And then some people are going to Beverly Hills and they have, you know, 24 hour care. And so nothing is even. So you just have to meet people where they are and listen to their situation. And maybe you can help. Maybe you can help them get a social worker. You know, it's up to you guys as nurses to get the ear of the doctor and go, maybe this person stay in the hospital for an extra two days because when they get home, they're not going to be able to relax, you know, or something like that. You you get to know them when they're in the hospital. That happened with me once. The first time I had my hips replaced, it, it went badly. The bone broke. And this is, it's funny because now you get a hip replacement, you're in and out in a day. But I stayed in 11 days the first time I had a hip replacement. And I think after about eight days, they're like, do you want to go home? And I was like, no, I still am exhausted. I just want to stay here. 
So I stayed for 11 days. But that was because the nurse knew I couldn't really get up and out of the bed. And I was getting a reaction from the painkillers. And and I was getting a rash. And, you know, they just looked at me and went, well, he's, you know, it would be hard for him to go home. So it was the nurses that pulled that off for me. Yeah, that advocated you know, sometimes we're advocating for someone to get out and sometimes we're advocating for someone to stay, you know, and there's all these people saying like, no, they got to go, they got to go. And you're like, you know what? They can't. And you know why? Because I sat down and I understand their situation. They live alone. They have stairs at home. It would be impossible for them to maneuver around because their bed is uh, up on a platform and it's too tall. You know, one of the things that nurses bring or have the ability to bring, especially if they take the time or have the time. Again, I'm going to say this is where the struggle is for nurses right now is that we want to do these things. And there's all these other things taking us away from the bedside. Yeah. Once people get home, if they don't have a, a good safety net, I, you know, I, I want to say that, that you guys are really the first line of defense, especially like on the weekends when the doctors are away and there's a either no doctor or there's a fill-in doctor on the weekend. And so, you know, you guys are the continuity. Yeah, I, I agree. And so I'll just flash forward, like you and I, we have a great nurse-patient relationship. And I would just even venture to say we've just become friends. You uh, eventually did not, you, you decided to go from like your IV infusion, which you were getting literally every two weeks. Mm -hmm. And that was Sarazyme. Am I remembering correctly? Yeah. Yeah. But we did V-Priv too, right? Like, didn't we do, we, we did like two different medications. We've, we've switched around. Um, but that is a really interesting infusion just for those of you who are listening and don't know. Um, it requires a lot of vials. I think somewhere around like 10 or 11 vials we used to like have out. And we would just sit and talk about our week. While... Yeah. While I was sitting there mixing medication, which just became second nature to me because I had just done it every two weeks for years. And I remember the first time I came to your place and you were actually over at the brewery, which is not a place where he didn't live like at a, a place where he was drinking beer all the time. The brewery is actually the, it's an art, colony. what do we call it? Colony. That's, that's the perfect example. Yes. It's an art colony. You go there and you're like, oh my gosh, what is this place? Like, where am I? And I walk in and there's all these like rooms, you know, doors down this hallway. I was like, what? This like used to be some giant warehouse. What did it use? Did it used to be it, a brewery? It was a brewery. It was a Pabst it was an Blue actual Ribbon Brewery. That, that's why it's called the brewery. So yeah, so they had basically taken this brewery and then they made it into this artist colony, which was such an incredible experience. Just like wonderful to be able to come and, and go into your space, which was like an art gallery. I mean, your your space was an art gallery. You can see it behind you, like even in this this video that we're doing right now. This uh, all your art and and everything. You're an incredible artist. I own some of your art, <laughs> um, but I think initially, like just right off the bat, when you met me, what would you say? What was in, what was impactful to you? Like, what do you think made us connect? Like, you know, even just early on. I, I will say that you and I both like life. So we just 
got along on that level. I had had a couple home nurses who, so there were a lot of steps to get to my place because it was this old factory. And I remember one nurse coming up and she was a smoker and she could barely get up the steps and (laughs) (laughs) she shows up. She smelled like cigarettes and she's wheezing. And I was like, I did not want her back again. And then you showed up and I'm like, oh, here's this funny... I, I don't know if we're if people are seeing you, but beautiful woman, and who just like made jokes and had interesting life and was out doing things. And we would talk about concerts we went to or shows we went to or our crazy friends that we have. So it really got to just be like seeing a friend every two weeks for me. Yeah, you know the the medicine was the the minor part of it. And I think that that's the. When you can make work not feel like work, you know, I, I think that that was just it is that, I, I mean, I've, very, I've been very blessed with having pretty incredible patients over the years. Um, some, you know, just became lifelong friends uh, because we just had so much in common and to what you said, like, just love life. Yep. One of the things that I always tried to do as a nurse, and, and I think it's been pretty effective over the years, just in terms of connecting with my patients quickly, is really just trying to disarm them. So many times patients have had poor experiences in the past, you know? So the minute you walk in the door, they're kind of like, all right, who's this person? Whether you're walking in the door at the hospital, into their room, or you're walking into their house, immediately... I've found that most patients are a little on guard. They're a little bit like, who are you? Can I trust you? So I've, I probably use a lot of humor and, and I try to be very authentic, I think, when I first meet somebody because I just want them to see that, look, my wall is down. You can take your wall down too. Did you feel like that was your experience with me? Like, did you feel like I was like yeah. that? I think a lot of it depends. Like, I've been sick my whole life. So for me, it's very normal. But I could see if somebody gets an illness later in life or becomes diabetic or starts showing up with ALS or something that is, you know, pretty severe later in life, and they've never had to deal with being sick, that it's a whole different thing. And I could see them, and maybe you can speak to this. I'll start interviewing you. Um... But, you know, I would think that people that get some of these severe illnesses later in life probably really resent it and they don't know how to deal with it. Whereas I grew up learning how to deal with it. So I would think they might resent you showing up like, hey, I I was on the football team and now I can't walk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that happens. Sometimes it takes a minute to connect with someone and it is not a one size fits all. I've said before being a nurse, I always feel like a chameleon a little bit. I walk in and immediately I'm trying to like acclimate to that environment. I'm I'm sensing, I'm using a lot of my intuition. I'm using a lot of like, how do I feel right now? I'm looking at this person. I'm I'm making a very quick like assessment of them. And, and I'm saying, this person looks like they're in pain. They look like they are ready to cry. They look tense. They look, you know, like their shoulders are tense. They look, you know, um, like they're literally on guard or they 
they look like they could shoot daggers through me right now. And I know it's not about me. They don't even know me. Like I, they haven't even met me yet. And they're, and sometimes there's just like lasers like coming, you know, out of their eyes, like b- boring through my body and immediately like kind of centering myself and grounding myself and going, how are you today? You know, are you having a lot of pain? What can I do for you? Before we even talk about the medications that you have that we got to do, let's sit down for a second, like, so that I can understand what are you feeling right now? And it is just kind of taking stock of that, that moment. I think that when we can get out of the busyness of our mind, because sometimes like what happens is that nurses walk in and they are thinking about the mountain of paperwork they have to do. They're thinking about the fact that they're already late and they need to be at the next patient and now they're going to be working longer in the day than they thought they were going to be working. Or if you're in the hospital, that you just have all these things going on in your head about the things that you need to do, or you're thinking about this laundry list of of patients that you have. And it's hard to just kind of be in the moment for that. But I will say that it is so incredibly important to try, if you can, to just be present. Mm -hmm. The only other real piece of advice I would give is to remember that you guys, you see things repeatedly. And, And when I give talks to patient groups or medical groups, I really like to remind whoever's watching. Let, let's say you come in for a hip replacement like I did, or, you know, I just interviewed somebody who had a lung transplant from cystic fibrosis. That lung transplant was probably the major event in that person's life. But you guys see it all the time. So you're more likely to know what that person's going to go through over the next five months while they heal up assuming the lungs aren't rejected, but that's part of it. Or when I had my hip replacement, I know that hip replacement doctor probably does at least one a day every week, maybe two. So for him, it is totally routine. And maybe for you guys in a hospital taking care of someone with a hip replacement, it's easy for you guys to think, okay, you'll be out of here in a day or two days and you'll be walking and depending on what kind of treatment, you know, in a month you'll be fine. Whereas the patient is sitting there going, I just had this major procedure. It's like I just said, it's probably the major event of their life. And there's such a disparity of how you guys view it to how the patients view it. And that's also part of your job to calm them down. But it's also part of your job to not become indifferent to it even though you know it's something that's relatively routine nowadays, to the person, it's not a routine day. Yep. And and I think we're all, when I say we, I mean the nurses, like I think we're all guilty of that, you know, in so many ways because A, we feel strapped for time. And so we don't communicate everything that's in our head because sometimes we just forget like, oh, This person doesn't know that they're doing great, that they're healing faster than people we've seen in the past. Or, hey, you know what? I'm really thinking, just so you know, the doctor may have said to you, like, you're going to be out in two days. 
I'm just telling you, based on where we are right now, you should probably be thinking four or five days because taking that information we have in our heads and sharing that information with the patients is something that really helps bring down the anxiety that they're experiencing. We have to find ways of being able to do that. We also have to make sure that we are practicing good professional boundaries, which means that when we are asked by administrators or, or our managers or someone, can you take an extra patient? Could you do this? Can you do that? Learning to say no, because we have to start prioritizing these things that you're talking about and saying, you know what? No, I can't do that. And you know why I can't do that? Because I need to go into room three and I need to tell my patient in room three what's going on with them, what they should expect over the next couple of days. And I haven't done that yet. And I need to do that because that's part of my job. Being able to say, no, you know what? You guys need to hire someone who comes in and does transport. You, you know what? You manager, you can transport this patient down to CT because I'm not doing that. I can't do that but you can do that. Go ahead and transport. <laughs> like, you know, so we have to start practicing our professional boundaries so that we can do exactly the things that you're talking about because I guarantee you if we can do those things, we're going to have a lot more job satisfaction. Yep. A hundred percent. Yep. And I just want to say patients are aware how important you guys are. <laughs> they might ask what the doctor says, but we're we're always aware of how important you guys are. So, Well, I appreciate that. And I'm just going to say this. If you are a patient in the hospital, you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. And I know that if you're in pain or, you know, it's hard. It's hard to be nice. <laughs> it is. It's hard to be nice. But I will tell you that more nurses will come in your room more. They will be there more. If when they walk in that door, there's, there's some kind of kindness waiting for them on the other side, uh, because we're human. When I was a kid, I, I have to say, I learned that if I was really nice to the nurses, I could leave my TV on later at night and I could get an extra cup of pudding from the refrigerator at nine o'clock at night when all the other kids had to be asleep. Well, there you go. See, you know, just, just remember that we're all kind of suffering and the patients are suffering and the nurses are suffering right now especially right now more more than more than ever before we've got two sets of suffering people and it's really hard we tend to not see outside of ourselves when we're suffering and so being able to lean in on those ideas of just kindness you know being kind to each other i think the overall nurse patient relationship will blossom and flourish when you can pull from that. And so I wanted to, well, first, I just want to say thank you so much, Ted, for doing this interview with me. And I'm looking forward to having future interviews with you about a variety of subjects. But I do want to just let you tell people really quickly what you do, because you have actually, you have art and med. So your website, where people can find you, um, learn more about what you're doing. Yeah. So I, my website is artandmed, A-R-T-A-N-D-M-E-D.com. 
And uh, as I said, I'm a patient advocate, but I do it all through art. And I go around the country and I talk to doctors and patient groups about telling their story through art. And I have a, lots of talks with lots of great artwork by different patient artists from all over the place. Um, I just got back from University of Indiana, and I think we're going to start a program there and help them do it. And I'm the artist in resident at the Keck School of Medicine at USC, where I run a gallery where I show work by patient artists that corresponds to the core curriculum of the medical school. So if we're studying respiratory illness, I'll show an artist with emphysema or cystic fibrosis who does work about their illness. And it's all to show the doctors what the lived experience of the patient is. So when they run into patients in the hospital, they, they've seen not just heard the words of the patients, but they've seen them depict what their life is like. So, so if I show artwork by somebody who's had pancreatic cancer, it's going to be about pancreatic cancer. It's not going to be, you know, a beautiful scene of the ocean or something like that. Because I, I just think pictures, you know, pictures are worth a thousand words and pictures by patients are worth 2000 words, I think. And they really can show people that, well, first, the patients have full lives. But I'm also a strong believer when it comes to creativity, that some of this thing we've suffered through makes better artwork. And I love showing that artwork because a lot of galleries are not going to show work about a colon reconstruction, but I have a gallery that can do that. And, and the work is beautiful and profound and should be seen. I love that. Oh my gosh. What a wonderful way to end such an incredible interview. Ted, thank you so much for being here with me. Thanks for having me. Thanks Anytime. for sticking me with a needle for 12 years. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, all my love to you and we will catch up soon. Okay. Thank you. If you are a nurse who enjoyed this episode and you have an idea for future episodes, you can connect with me by downloading the nurse.com app. See you there.